Creative, expertise, technology, patents, and people. Intellectual property is the core of business today. Protecting it is a priority. From a single innovation to large corporate IP issues, we're talking about it here on IP Council. Join IP Council host and attorney Peter Lando, partner of Lando and Anastasi, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome. Welcome to IP Council on the Legal Talk Network. I am Peter Lando, partner with the Cambridge, Massachusetts intellectual property law firm, Lando and Anastasi. And you can learn more about Lando and Anastasi at our website, lalaw.com. I'm very excited about today's program on IP value creation and uh, particularly today's guest. In today's economy and global age, perhaps more than ever, Businesses are looking for creative ways to improve competitive advantages, attract investment, and grow profits. Some companies have learned that their intellectual property assets can play a key role in achieving these goals, and they have begun to explore ways to leverage and deploy their intellectual property as business tools. Many more businesses, however, have much to learn. Clearly, there is a greater need to understand your intellectual property assets, what your intellectual property assets can do for your business. How can value be created? Joining me today is my guest, Harry Gwinnell, Vice President and Chief Intellectual Property Counsel at Cargill, Inc. in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Cargill is a world leader and producer and marketer of food, agricultural, financial, and industrial products and services. It is one of the largest privately held companies in the world with more than $150 billion in sales, operations in more than 70 countries, and more than 120,000 employees. In addition to his role at Cargill, Harry has served as president of the Association of Corporate Patent Council. He was president of the Intellectual Property Owners Education Foundation, and prior to those positions was president of the Connecticut and Tennessee Intellectual Property Law Associations. He has also held several board positions with various other IP organizations and is a recognized thought leader and speaker in the area of intellectual asset management. Welcome to IP Council, Harry. Thank you, Peter. I appreciate that uh, very generous uh, introduction. Peter, first thing I'd like to do is just to clarify that, uh, that these are my personal opinions based on my own knowledge and experience, and they don't represent any formal positions taken by Cargill on any of the matters that we're going to discuss. Okay, I understand. Let's get right to it. There's a lot to talk about. Uh, Harry, I know you've had experiences at several companies dealing with intellectual asset management. Uh, what, was, what was the situation like at Cargill before you arrived there 10 years ago? Sure. Yeah, I'm actually the uh, first chief intellectual property uh, counsel at Cargill. Um, and uh, the, the, the story about uh, how I got here is kind of interesting. Cargill is primarily or has traditionally been primarily a commodity-based business. And um, and that philosophy changed about 12 years ago, uh, where they they really generated a new business strategy based on innovation, creativity, and customer solutions. And really, what they were looking for was to continue the growth pattern that they'd had in the past uh, of basically doubling in size every seven to eight years. Hmm. Uh, but uh, but the the old strategies of uh, of just getting bigger and bigger. Uh, we're getting harder to accomplish that result. 
So they started focusing on things like higher margins and larger market share, which would be sustainable over time. And to the credit of the of the uh, executive team, they really recognized that uh, management of intellectual property was going to be essential to this strategy and their continued growth. I see. What were, what were some of the metrics uh, that, that you might measure the uh, Cargill's growth in IP participation or, or recognition of IP? Yeah, it was kind of interesting. Um, when when I arrived, the the patent portfolio was uh, was relatively small. I had about thirty um, U.S. patents, and um, and on the trademark side, they did a little bit uh, more. Uh, they had uh, they had a few thousand registered trademarks, and kind of one of the measures that we looked at, especially early on. Um, were the patent families. We have about 400 patent families now, and uh, we average uh, four to six international filings based off each of these priority filings. So our our total is uh, slowly uh, sneaking up to about 2,000 internationally. And on the trademark registration side, we're uh, we're in excess of 11,000 registered trademarks right now. Wow. So you've had such a, a tremendous impact in these 10 years. That's that's tr- that's great to hear. I'm uh, I'm afraid many other companies are uh, are not so so actively managing their intellectual property the way they should. Uh what would you say is the biggest concern for a company that's not actively managing their IP? Yeah, and and you know it's interesting. Um I found the, the situation like at, at Cargill as a good example of that is uh, the um companies who aren't actively managing their intellectual property um, are actually uh, destroying value because it's uh, it's kind of an interesting situation that if if you uh, if you don't manage your intellectual property uh, in many instances you just give it away um, and and so you're not really recognizing the value that it has or taking advantage of the value extraction opportunities that you really have to generate value based on this intellectual property and the other the other side of the coin too is uh, the, the intellectual property that you're expected to manage and handle from from customers and other business partners, um, if you don't manage their intellectual property uh, properly, then you can also uh, destroy some of those relationships uh, by that mismanagement. Because there's certainly an expectation that the especially the proprietary information that you're given uh, will be managed properly. So just in just in a business's day to day, the interaction with with uh, customers and suppliers, for instance, uh, perhaps even competitors, you're, you're going to have access uh, to to others' IP and and need in on occasion to share your own. That's exactly right. Yeah, and and, and as I say, I think there's an expectation that that you'll uh, you know as a as in furtherance of establishing a good relationship that you will manage their intellectual property and handle it uh, in a way that doesn't destroy value. An interesting uh, aside, Peter, and we're going to talk, uh, I guess we'll talk a little bit more about value creation and value extraction in more detail, but, uh, you know, the interaction with customers uh, can also provide an opportunity to, to bring to them something that they don't have. Uh, many customers don't manage their intellectual property in a way that maximizes the value that they can extract from it too and uh, and you can really strengthen a customer relationship if you can bring them an intellectual property solution or an intellectual property strategy 
which generates value that they don't anticipate or hadn't thought about. Uh, talk about building a strong relationship uh, that, that can really do it in spades. So, so to use it as a uh, an, an inclusive rather than an exclusive asset or uh, as a currency to to further a relationship uh, upstream or downstream. Exactly. You know, Cargill is really well known for their their innovative culture, um, and especially in, in interaction with their customers. And and we very often now do bring uh, innovative solutions in the intellectual property area to our customers. We mm. found that we really establish some uh, strong relationships as a result of that. Well, let's let's back up a little bit. Um, how how does a company, um, and and it's the experience that you had stepping into Cargill. How does a company build a solid IP foundation? Sure, that's a that's a good question. I think you know, and building the foundation is uh, is really key. Uh, I know we've I've talked to some companies who try to get up to the value extraction piece before they really have the infrastructure, the systems, and the people in place to do so. And, uh, and and in most instances, it just collapses because they get kind of ahead of themselves. So the, the first focus um, that I had, especially when I got here, was to really build the infrastructure to, to, uh, to hire the people, uh, build the attorney base. The support staff is very important, too. You really have to have knowledgeable and helpful support staff. Um, and then the, uh, the electronic systems to, to get those in place, uh, in anticipation of of the growth in the intellectual property area, for example, one of the things we did here because we're such a global company is to uh, incorporate a web-based system to manage our intellectual property so that we could access it from the different regions around the world that we operate in. Um, so we manage it centrally, but it's accessible locally uh, in Latin America, Europe, and Asia. I see. And and what role does uh, does uh, education? You you mentioned uh, infrastructure and investment in people and and uh, perhaps software or web based access. Uh, what role is um, education, particularly of the business? Uh, yeah, that's an excellent question, uh, Peter. The the uh, education is is a part of our goals uh, every year, and that includes uh, educating the scientists and the inventors. Um, on, uh, to, to help them have an appreciation for what is patentable and isn't patentable. It's interesting with science and engineers, they know so much about their area that uh, what they consider to be small and almost uh, obvious improvements um, really move the state of the art forward and, and, and in many instances are, are worthy of patenting. Um, and so they have to be educated to, to help them to at least make the invention disclosures, even if they don't think it's uh, it's a, it's a huge step forward um, because again, if it's if it's different and better, uh, that certainly gives you the basis to consider patentability. And then on the business side, as you mentioned, um, the the management of intellectual property that I found for most business people is just not instinctive. Um, it's it's not a big subject in business schools, although I'm, I'm beginning to see more and more offerings in the business schools. So the education piece for the uh, for the business people is also a key part. So as I as I mentioned, the, I always say up, down, and sideways. We we make education part of our um, our yearly goals every year. And and um, how then do you how can you tell if you've if you've had impact or you've changed the culture of a company, uh, particularly in the IP management sense? Yeah, I think um, what I noticed is that um, in the early business meetings the the business strategy meetings that I was able to participate in, 
I'd have to remind folks uh, to incorporate an IP strategy associated with their business strategy. And uh, in the meetings uh, in, in the later years, uh, more recently, um, I don't have to make that reminder anymore. So when folks start talking about their business strategy, they, they also discuss the IP strategy that will support that business strategy. And, uh, and that's been kind of heartwarming to me that I didn't have to provide those uh, reminders. And, and one, one real indicator is that uh, there's a recognition that there's, there's uh, monetary expenses associated with supporting your IP activities. And so when I see the budgets, for example, for a new product launch, it, uh, it does include a line item um, for, the, uh, for the investigation and generation uh, of, uh, of intellectual property. I see. I see. Um, uh, you and I have have spoken in the past about a, a particular tool in in um, w- when you're building this this foundation, and and I'm speaking specifically of patent patent mapping. And what uh, um, what purposes, perhaps you can share? Um, have have you used patent maps, and and how might others uh, businesses of all sizes uh, use that tool and take advantage of the results? Yeah, I, I've made uh, I've made uh, uh, very good use of the patent maps in a lot of areas. Um, you know, of course, the patent maps are basically the results of, of research in a particular area, and then you organize the patents in a way that uh, you can get the answers to your specific business questions or technology questions when you query the uh, the information that you've accumulated. And uh, and typically, uh, I start with a mapping of the technology um, and um, for example, if you have a specific product, um, you map the various processes just on the technology side to produce that product and even go uh, one step further back and, and map the, the, uh, the raw materials uh, and the processes to generate those raw materials to produce that product. And then on the other side, you, uh, you map the, uh, the applications and the end uses. And then you do your patent searches associated with each one of those elements uh, and then organize the results of those searches so you can tell who is a, a, a significant player in that area or who is um, based on the frequency that they're accumulating patents in that area, who are the fast movers, what what areas are more mature and, and not moving so much. And, and this has tremendous um, uh, value in generating and sustaining a business strategy and it also sends some real signals as to how you can generate an IP strategy which supports the business strategy. And, and we've done that by, by mapping our own portfolio to see where the spaces and the opportunities are, uh, by mapping uh, uh, our, our, our key competitors or specific competitors to see what areas they're moving into um, and to uh, eliminate any blocking patents from the perspective of if we're going to design a strategy, we don't want to design it and, and move right into uh, somebody else's sweet spot. Okay. And um, I'm, perhaps we, we'll have an opportunity to get to some examples later on, but I'm, I'm kind of curious. Um, so so you, you can take advantage of mapping to, to see um, – to find white space to, to enter into – um, whether they be suppliers or customers or competitors or disruptive technologies, um, it's, it sounds like a, a, a very useful tool. I'm, I'm kind of curious, though, in, in today's um, 
today's economy, everybody seems focused on the bottom line. And as you you mentioned, uh, IP management is is not uh, instinctive to most business people, and perhaps they see it as an expense. Uh, what have you done to get business people to buy in and become engaged in that in that investment? Yeah, I think um, one of the things that um, that we've we've tried to do is to talk uh, in, in their language. So, uh, for example, to um, to really focus the activities in the IP area on relevance to their business. So the starting point for us is is how do you make your how do you make your money? How, how are you putting dollars on the bottom line uh, through what services, through what products? Uh, just through what business model, and then we'll help them to see what business, uh, what uh, intellectual property tools can be used to support those business activities, and um, and and then the the thing that really gets their attention is um, is either cost savings associated with the intellectual property uh, or value created through um, uh, partnering arrangements or uh, even even just on margins and sustainability associated with the the key elements of how they how they make their money how they generate cash to the bottom line so so i think the the two key issues i think are one relevance to how they're making their money uh and secondly to have some measures to indicate uh, ec- economic or financial impact but but that first that first time uh, I'm thinking perhaps of a of a startup business or a smaller company. Certainly, uh, that that probably covers ninety ninety nine percent of the businesses in the world, smaller than 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 Cargill. Uh, that that first business uh, investment in in this exercise. Um, what would you suggest, and how how to um, convince business people to, yeah. to to get involved? Sure, I think you know these the elements that I that I mentioned. You know, they, it's interesting they they apply to to large companies and small companies in the same way. So again, I think you you look at the business model, and uh, and then uh, for example, um, if they have a patent portfolio, uh, you look at the management of that portfolio, uh, and sometimes folks will overfile, so they may have. Um, they may have patent holdings in in many countries, and uh, with the with the marketing model or the uh, the sales uh, model that they have, um, you can eliminate some of those countries and still maintain a strong competitive position. And you can demonstrate the cost savings associated with the active management of their patent portfolio. Um, similarly, with uh, with with trademarks in the same way. I see. Well, thanks for that creative advice, Harry. Uh, We need to take a short break right now, and when we return, more with Harry Gwinnell. If you found us in the podcast library of iTunes, thanks for listening. Check out some of our other shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com and become a member. It's free. Welcome back to IP Council on the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're joined by Harry Gwinnell, Vice President and Chief Intellectual Property Counsel at Cargill. Harry, picking up where we left off, um, I'm I'm told and I'm aware of and certainly reading more and more about some companies are um, are like Cargill, are um, 
setting up their intellectual property management function and maybe even as uh, separate business entities. What uh, is, have your observations been, uh, pros and cons? Yeah, I think um, that's a good question, Peter. I think the uh, some companies have actually set up um, as a separate uh, uh, subsidiary, um, basically uh, intellectual property management uh, functions or companies, and, and others leave it incorporated into the, the uh, regular businesses. And I can really see adva- advantages of both. Um, I think the, the, the beauty of the separate companies uh, is that uh, there's a certain accountability there. So it really helps you to focus on the objectives and the goals. Uh, and, and, and as a profit center, there's uh, certainly a lot more accountability than if you're just integrated into your regular businesses. On the other side, um, I, 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 I think if you're actually uh, part of the regular corporate environment, um, it provides an opportunity to get closer to the businesses and, and really get integrated with their business strategy and their profit goals so you become more of an integrated function. So there's certainly benefits to, to doing it either way. Who are some of these uh, some of these companies going in this direction? Well, I think uh, 3M is one. Uh, I think um, certainly IBM is is well known for their efforts. Um, Verizon and uh, and Philips, I think, has one of the uh, uh, one of the more well known models. Okay, so so this is this is the uh, kind of the the pyramid as as you climb up the pyramid. I think I've heard you explain in the uh, in the past. Um, um, these these are companies that have made their way, the visionaries. Uh, yeah, yeah. The top of the uh, little pyramid that I uh, I use as my model, I, I call it the visionary level, and and what uh, companies who are uh, these uh, I'll call them freestanding uh, intellectual property ventures, uh, what they do, uh, although they're still part of the uh, the parent company, uh, but operate as uh, as subsidiaries in that environment, uh, they tend to um, manage the intellectual property in a way. Uh, that establishes a position um, with a vision towards where technology is going, and then they kind of wait for the technology to move into uh, that sphere, which is a which is a great uh, business model if you can do it. Hmm. Okay. Hey, Harry, with our with our um, remaining time, I, I think examples are just are just very very useful to to add some color to the topic and and uh, help our listeners. Uh, see more clearly what what we're talking about here in creating value from uh, from IP. Uh, do you have any specific IP value extraction examples you can share? Sure, I've got a few stories that uh, um, have always uh, uh, warmed my heart. Let's say <laughs> um, the, the uh, at another company that I was working for, we um, we had a commodity product, and intellectual property really wasn't a big part of their business strategy. But they did have uh, uh, an invention that came up uh, that was very uh, innovative to, to one of their processes. And so we ended up getting a patent on that innovation, even though it was in a commodity environment where the margins were small. And, um, and interestingly, um, the, uh, one of the uh, foreign competitors who was really setting the price uh, for the sales of these commodity products uh, began copying the process, and we could we could tell that they were copying because it was easy to reverse engineer the product and tell. Uh, and so there were markers for the process in that product, and uh, so we uh, we did end up filing a, a complaint against them, and, uh, and that brought them to the table, and we ended up negotiating a license agreement. And because the margins were small, um, the uh, 
the the royalty rate was not very large, but but again, large volume, so it did provide some significant noticeable uh, income. But the real the real key to the story is uh, as kind of being the uh, the price setter in the marketplace, um, they had to raise their price to accommodate the royalty rate, and that that raised the whole price of the market. So. We kind of got a double dip on the royalty payment. Um, not only were we able to receive the royalty payment from them, but we got the benefit of the whole uh, price in the marketplace going up, which increased our margins as well. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, interestingly, that uh, <laughs> that commodity business manager started looking all over the place for other innovation to patent after that. <laughs> no surprise, right? All right. Um, another kind of interesting situation that we had was uh, we had a... Uh, uh, a, a, a manufacturer of um, uh, it, it was in the uh, animal feed area, uh, but uh, they were infringing one of our patents, and and they there was evidence that they were they were doing it globally, and so we had to decide strategically how we were going to enforce our patents, and so what we did was we looked at the various markets that they were operating in, and. Um, and we strategically selected um, one of the markets where we thought it was would have the biggest impact for the dollars that we were going to have to incur for litigation. And we were successful. We got uh, a royalty payment, but uh, more importantly, we got an injunction in that marketplace. And then we were gearing up to go country by country, and uh, and they actually shut down their operations in, in the other countries. So uh, when we inquired uh, as to... Um, why they did that? Uh, the, the response was basically having um, having lost one of their largest markets. Uh, they could no longer compete globally, and so um, again, that's that by by so by selective uh, by selecting the proper jurisdiction, uh, we were able to um, uh, strategically accomplish our objective without having to incur costs in all the countries that we held patents. I see. Okay. Any others? Uh, I got. Uh, I can give you one more. Yeah. I I know that um, we and, and this was a, a non-food area, but uh, we had uh, an, an innovative product that uh, we also got a trademark on, and again, it was patented and trademarked. And we got a call from our competitor that uh, customers were asking for that product from them by our trade name or <laughs> our brand name. And uh, and so they wanted to know if we would be interested in licensing the uh, the product and the process, but also the trademark. And uh, just uh, as an aside, uh, we were having difficulty meeting the demand at the time, so this was like a, a real godsend. So we told them that we would you know, gladly license the the patents and the trademark. And uh, and so not only did we then uh, derive revenue through royalties for their manufacture, but it solved our our supply problem as well. Interesting. Okay. So so there's a there's an example the where where even trademark rights brought brought attention to the product, and uh, as you say, you were you were tapped out on the ability to even make more. So. Uh, you were ready, willing, and able to license the uh, the ability to manufacture and and uh, and sell the product under the trademark. Absolutely, and I think that, that that's a 
that's a good point, Peter, because it highlights the fact that you know you have to look at the whole package. I mean, there's opportunities provided by managing your 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 trade secrets and proprietary information, um, your patents and your trademarks as well. Yeah. So really, you have to look at it holistically when you're looking at an IP strategy to support a successful business strategy, because sometimes there's opportunities that you don't realize unless you look at the whole package. So so uh, occasionally what seems like a, a kind of coincidence uh, that somebody came to you, uh, had you not been prepared, that is, uh, having the process patented, uh, certainly, or, or, or the trademark protected, uh, you wouldn't have been able to, uh, to set the terms of any agreement uh, with that company. So it may have been uh, appear at first blush as a, as a coincidence that you were contacted. Uh, without the IP assets, you wouldn't have made any deal because the company wouldn't have needed a deal. They would have just made the product or provided what they could. That's exactly right. One of the, uh, one of the um, analogies I always use with some of the business folks when I'm trying uh, to, uh, to have them dedicate resources to generating an intellectual property portfolio is uh, I use the little analogies. You, you know, you've got to have poker chips to play the game. So um, if you you know if, if you don't have the chips, then you can't play the game. Interesting, um, Harry. Any uh, any last thoughts on uh, you'd like to add on the on the topic? Yeah, I think I would just like to say it's uh, it's 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 not an easy journey. It is a tough journey. Uh, but when uh, but when you and the business folks that you're working with can really see the impact that it has on the bottom line. Uh, it's it's really uh, it's really rewarding all the way around. And uh, one one last uh, uh, question. I mean, I, I I'd be negligent as a as a outside intellectual property counsel, a private practitioner, if I didn't ask uh, what what might private practitioners bring to the table, or how can we assist in the process of value creation? Um, any any thoughts in that regard? Sure. I mean, I think you know we we I think every corporation has limited resources, so. So the um, the use of outside counsel is absolutely critical, and and I think what uh, what really helps a lot is if the if the outside counsel really knows the business, if they know the technology and the business, so they can identify uh, opportunities and make suggestions. If they can bring some innovative ideas to, to the in-house counsel, uh, that that's very much appreciated. So so you'll take creativity from any source. Absolutely. Well, I'm I'm hopeful to help. All right. <laughs> well, that 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 about does it for this edition of IP Council. Uh, remember, you can find all of our shows at legaltalknetwork.com. You can also subscribe to this program through iTunes. And a, and a very special thanks to my guest Harry Gwinnell for joining me today. If someone wants uh, more information on this topic, how can they reach you, Harry? Uh, sure, Peter. My uh, my uh, work phone is uh, is nine five two seven four two. Five three nine nine. Um, I'm a little bit tough to reach by phone, so uh, the, the likelihood of success would probably uh, be better with my email, and it's uh, Harry underscore Gwinnell at Cargill.com. Very generous of you to offer your phone number, Harry. I hope you have someone <laughs> or a, a long tape to take the messages. Uh, and, and of course, you can contact me at LALaw.com or email me directly at PLando at LALaw.com. Join us next time for another episode of IP Council, and have a great day, everyone. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network. 
its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening today. Join us again on the next edition of IP Council, Talking Law and IP, right here on the Legal Talk Network.